And I want to ask you to turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Book of 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Let's begin reading together in verse 1. The word of the Lord says, Now about food sacrificed to idols. We know that we all possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know. But the man who loves is known by God. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols. We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many, quote, gods and many, quote, lords, yet there is but one God and Father from whom all things came and for whom we live, and there is but one Lord Jesus Christ through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone knows this. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat food, such food, that is food sacrificed to idols, they think of it as having been sacrificed to an idol, and since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat, and no better if we do. Be careful, however that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone with a weak conscience sees you who have this knowledge about one God, eating at an idol's temple, won't he be emboldened to eat what has been sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against your brothers in this way, and wound their weak consciences, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause him to fall. Interesting passage of Scripture. The topic is this. Food sacrificed to idols. That's the topic. Now, some of you probably need to come clean this morning because you struggled with this this week. Okay, and you're thinking, right? Food sacrificed to idols. Okay, if I said, All right, that's the topic for the morning, most of us would think, okay. Why? Because that topic seems far away. It's 2,000 years ago. If you, however, lived in a country that practices Buddhism, or if you lived in a country like India, you would know that this is not that far away. And when it really comes down to the topic of idolatry, we are all at some level idolaters. That is, that we put things before God. In this text, the topic is food offered to idols. And, and it's fascinating because that food sacrifice to idols phrase that you see in the New International Version is really one word. It's the food of idols. One Greek word that really carries out into this phrase. It's mentioned in verse 1, and then in verse 4, Paul brings it up again. So, we have to ask the question, what is this food offered to idols topic? And then we can look at what, how is it relevant to our day? 
Okay, so we'll look, what is, it, what is food offered to idols, and how is the discussion about it relevant to Christianity in the 20th century, 21st century? Now, what is it? Okay? In the ancient world, idol worship was common. If you remember from Acts 17, when Paul goes into the city of Athens, he says, I saw in your pantheon many gods. I mean, there were many deities that were acknowledged by the people of Corinth. There were gods of work, gods of travel, gods of love, gods of justice, gods of fertility. And if you start thinking about this, if you have a background in Catholicism, you know that there are saints of this and saints of that and idols that people adopt for specific purposes and functions, right? They're almost good luck charms. Keep them happy and all will go well in your life. In the context of idol worship in the ancient world, and in some places still today, animal sacrifice was the means by which the gods were appeased, by which their wrath was turned away, and by which their goodwill would be earned by the one offering the sacrifices. Part of the animal sacrifice was burned on the altar. Part of the animal sacrifice was given to the priest. Part of the animal sacrifice was given to the person who had offered the sacrifice. But because of the prevalence of animal sacrifices, there was always this issue of leftover meat and the quality of the meat there tended to be the best that the ancient world had to offer. It was often then shipped to the meat market, which was often behind the temples, and people would go and purchase leftover meat. And typically it was revered, it was uh, acknowledged as the best meat that there was, kind of like going to a Texas roadhouse today. Okay, The problem was this. That meat had been used in pagan worship. There was in the mind of new believers in the ancient world, especially in a city like Corinth, a, for them a connection between that meat that had been offered to idols and worshiping idols. There was a conscience connection for them between this meat and pagan worship. So the question that came up was this. Is eating that meat a participation in pagan worship? If we eat meat that was offered to an idol, are we not slipping back into or are we not living too closely to our old life? And it became the issue, and you, as you get down to verse 7, you'll see their conscience is weak. Verse 10, if anyone with a weak conscience. Okay, there's two groups of people in this text. Some are strong believers who have a clear understanding about the issue of idols. And then there are weak believers who still accord some, if you will, I want to use the word respect or uh, sense of reality to the idols. They still see them as a real thing. Was eating that meat participating in pagan worship? Two groups are addressed in the text. Two groups are present in the church in Corinth. Two groups are present in every body of Christ local, like the chapel at Warren Valley. Some are strong and mature Christians who are coming to understand that in Jesus Christ, I am set free from old superstitions that used to hold me down. That there is liberty in Christ. An understanding that emerges in this text, 
And I just want you to notice how Paul says this in verse 4. So about eating food sacrificed to idols. And now he's going to quote what the strong believers in Corinth were saying in relationship to meat offered to idols. Okay? And look, there's a tendency always for those that are further advanced to at some way look down on those that are less advanced to not value those that are less farther along than they are. Here's what they're saying. They're saying, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. And even if there are many so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods with a small g and lords with a small l, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came, harking back to the Jewish understanding of Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay, what are, what are the strong believers saying? Hey, there is only one God. So it is therefore impossible to participate in the worship of other gods because there aren't other gods. Okay, the argument is that those gods are figments of the imagination. There is only one God. And it's fascinating then that he also says, and there is only one Lord and his name is not Caesar. Because in the ancient world, one of the struggles of the early church in the Roman Empire was, if you were a citizen of Rome, at times you were obliged to profess, to proclaim that Caesar is Lord. For early Christians, many of them died because they would not make the claim that Caesar is Lord. Why? Because they understood that there was one Lord and His name is not Caesar. His name is Jesus Christ. Now, there's a set of believers in the church who are strong and mature, who know for certain that pagan gods are not gods and that there is only one true God and Father and only one supreme ruler, and He is not Caesar. He is Jesus Christ. And at the end of verse 6, how does Paul say it? He created everything. Everything that does exist was created by Him and for Him and is subjected to Him. So the strong believer knows that there, those idols do not represent a real deity. Why? Because there is only one God. And that idol is a figment of the imagination. You go back into the Old Testament, the book of Isaiah, where Isaiah is kind of chiding with the idolaters. He says, they take their idols and they nail them on a cart, okay, that wood, wood statue, they nail it down on the cart and they take it around from place to place. Why? Because that idol has no capacity or ability in and of itself to accomplish anything. It is merely a figment of the imagination. The mature believer knows that. He's certain of that. He's come to the conclusion that to eat the meat is not equal to worshiping a so-called God. Okay, so that's the strong crowd. But there were also a crowd that was called the weak crowd or newer Christians. They were marked by being careful in relationship to food offered to idols. They are wrestling with the ramifications of the gospel, recently saved out of a pagan lifestyle and worldly lifestyle. And when they ate meat that had been offered to an idol, their mind kept drifting back to whether or not they were in some way offending God Himself by participating in meat that was offered to idols. That was this, in their conscience, they began to wrestle with the ramifications of the truth. There is one God and there is one Lord. And they're trying to work that out in their Christian experience. And there was a, you can tell from this text, there's a, there's a conflict here. 
In verse 1, Paul says, Now about food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge. He's probably quoting what the Corinthians are saying. Hey, we know the truth, and the truth sets us free. Therefore, these people need to get over their qualms about eating food that has been sacrificed to idols. They need to grow up. They need to mature. And when they mature, they'll do what we do. I want to move into this text from the perspective of cultivating a heart that cares for those around us. Because really the theme of this text is living a life that is careful about cultivating and growing those around us. It's about overcoming a self-centered mindset that says, you know what, my life is about my happiness. The Apostle Paul is going to challenge that mindset that says, I am free to do whatever I want to do because I am in Christ. Paul's going to say, you're free to serve Christ. But there are brothers and sisters in Christ in your life who need to be encouraged, who need help to grow, to become everything that God wants them to be. Don't stand in their way. Don't become a stumbling block to them. Instead, cultivate a heart that cares. So the first thought that I want to bring out of this text this morning is this. Knowledge about God, knowledge of the truth, is a good thing. But, knowledge can make you, what word would you put here? It can make you proud. It can build up an arrogance or an insensitivity to the issues that other people struggle with. Okay, it's easy to say, well, I'm free to do that, therefore I can do it. Paul says that that's... Just because something is lawful doesn't mean that it's expedient. Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 12, remember? Just because I can do something doesn't mean that I should do something. There are other issues at stake, other issues that should be taken into consideration. Knowledge is good, but it can make you proud. It can make you impatient. It can make you unloving. It can make you careless. So it's fascinating when you read verse 1. We know that we all possess knowledge. Paul's like, yes, yes, that's true. But at the end of verse 1, what does he say? Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Knowledge has a capacity to cause you to get an inflated perspective, to feel superior to others, and to exercise all of your freedoms, not caring about the impact of your life on newer, and this is key in the context, on newer brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. Knowledge has a liability. It has the potential to make you feel superior and to become belligerent. Okay, I don't know if you're like me, but teaching people to do something that you know how to do well can sometimes be a struggle because what you know how to do well or what you have a natural inclination to do well, it came to you easy. You start trying to teach someone else how to do that. I'll give you an illustration. I'm Working with my daughters on tennis. I do not have natural inclinations in tennis, however. I can hit the ball, okay? When you're teaching someone who's never done something and you're trying to help them just get it down because here's what I'm concerned about when I go to the tennis court. I want to enjoy playing tennis. I want to hit the ball back and forth and enjoy doing that. But when you're teaching someone who's new, guess what you have to do? You have to stuff your personal desire for satisfaction and exercise in what you're doing. And realize that they're, they're not quite there yet. They're coming along. But they need someone who, in order for someone to become better in tennis, they need to play someone who's better. Someone who's willing to give up the full exercise of tennis for the benefit of lifting someone else up. Teaching someone to drive. Or being behind a new driver. 
Okay, do you ever feel that? What are they doing? Why did they put their turn signal on? Okay, you get behind the new driver or the new drivers in your car and you're teaching them. Okay, there's this sense, hey, this came easy to me. And we have this tendency for knowledge, for capacities and abilities that we have to cause us to get an inflated view of ourselves and to be unkind to someone who is just starting to come along. Parents, you deal with this with your children. You're teaching them at the dinner table how to drink without spilling. You do it, okay? You're good at it. They're not there yet. They pick up the cup and the stuff's running out. And you're, oh, lower it down a little bit so it doesn't run out. And, well, it, to you, it makes so much sense. It's so logical that you don't put it all the way up and take a bath in milk. It's, it's lying. And you're watching, you're like, ah! Okay, why? Because the knowledge that, hey, I do that quite well. I do that quite well. It, it, it can lead us to be insensitive to the fact that others need help. They need to be moved along. Paul's saying, yes, yes, you have knowledge. Yeah, okay, great. You know more than them. But you be careful that your knowledge doesn't cause you to elevate yourself to a place where you live in a way that damages their conscience. Paul says, be sensitive. Don't be so careless and self-centered. So full of a desire for your own satisfaction. I love what Paul says in verse 2. Okay, you know, yes, we all know that we all possess knowledge. Verse 1, verse 2. The man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know. Whoa. The person who thinks that they've arrived in regards to knowledge about pagan sacrifices in Corinth isn't as far along. If he's using his freedom in a way that destroys his brother in Christ, what he doesn't know is how to love his brother. Yeah, he knows how to eat the meat offered to idols with no pang of conscience, but he doesn't know how to care for his brother in Christ. And then verse 3 becomes a very kind of a stand-up statement. The man who loves God is known by God. The man who loves God is known by God. Why? Because God is love. Don't let your knowledge take you to a place where you feel superior to your brothers and sisters who are on a journey to becoming what God, by His grace, is designing for them to be. Now the transition then takes place, and I'm going to jump down to verse 7. Paul says, yes, you all have knowledge. Yes, 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 but, verse 7, everyone does not know this. This truth about God being the supreme ruler and the supreme creator and there being one Lord Jesus Christ, that truth has not become full to every believer. Yes, yes, you have knowledge, but, Paul says in there, I sense a tone of a warning, not everyone knows this. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat that food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to an idol. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. If I'm going to love people and cultivate their growth in Christ as I should, I need to remember that knowledge can make me proud. And I may not want to go over the basic truths, but I want to tell you something. There is deep joy in going over the basic truths of a walk with Christ. There is something glorious about exalting the cross of Christ talking about the basics of prayer, of what it means to be in God's Word. There is great joy and delight in those things. Never lose that. These people, are kind of, they've kind of moved on past the, the basic things. They're into the deeper life and the deeper things. But in the exercise of their freedom, they are wounding their brothers in Christ. 
The second thought that I think emerges here is this simple reminder that the conscience that individuals have and that you have is a gift from God to promote holiness in your life. The conscience is a gift from God. And when you become filled with the Spirit of God, having trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, He turbocharges your conscience, doesn't He? He makes you sensitive to things that in the past you weren't sensitive to. And what is Paul saying? Paul's saying, you're wounding their conscience by your behavior. Remember that their conscience is a gift from God to promote holiness. And there is this implied warning. Don't damage your brother or sister in Christ's conscience. Don't trample on it. Don't belittle it. And its sensitivities. Not everyone has this full knowledge. They know Christ, but they don't know the full ramifications of what it means to be in Christ. There are individuals in the church in Corinth who have not yet processed the truth and their superstitions. They're still in some way bound by those things. Paul's calling the church to be sensitive to them. Because if they're insensitive, they, and the word that he uses is defile, the idea means to pollute or to ignore and violate in a way that leads to guilt and confusion. Okay? To violate someone's conscience in a way that leads to guilt and confusion or to cause them to act in a way that violates their conscience and leads them to guilt and confusion about their relationship with Jesus Christ. Paul, what is Paul saying? He's saying if you love people, you will be sensitive to the fact that they have a God-given conscience and they have a responsibility before God to live in a way that acknowledges that conscience and is sensitive to it in their daily life. Now, let me give you this definition of conscience. Conscience is a God-given moral compass to promote holiness in your life. I don't know about you. I am thankful that God has given every person a conscience. Because if we didn't have a conscience, how incredibly reckless and careless we would be. Romans 2, verses 14 and 15. I love this passage of Scripture. It says that a person's conscience alternately accuses and defends. When they choose a course of action, your conscience says, this is right, this is good. And they talk about the little guy that sits on your shoulder, right? It's it's the conscience. Okay, that's the picture that Paul's talking about. It alternately says, hey, that was the right thing to do. Or when you've had a disagreement with your mate in which they were right, and your conscience is saying, you were wrong. You need to go and apologize. It is a God-given moral compass that points us to holiness. And when you trust Christ, it is in a sense heightened and straightened by the work of the Holy Spirit. Three observations, just real quick. Therefore, this conscience that is a gift from God to promote holiness is valuable. Don't trash your brother or sister's conscience. Don't belittle their sensitivities. Oh, come on, get over it. You can do that. Don't do that. Now, can people be trained according to the Word of God? Yes. It's the second thought about the conscience, okay? It's valuable. It is a gift from God that promotes holiness. It is also trainable, okay? A person who is weak in Christ can become strong in Christ. A person in Corinth who is struggling with eating meat offered to idols because they still see some degree of reality in relationship to that idol can come to a place where they know that there's one God. He created me, and I can eat that meat. Okay, they can come to that place, but don't shove it down their throat. Okay, their conscience is valuable. It is trainable. It can and must be taught. But also this. The conscience is fallible. 
how you feel about something does not determine what is true about something. Okay? The character on, in Pinocchio, Jiminy Cricket, what did he say? Always let your conscience be your guide. Okay? Here's what I would say to you. Always listen to your conscience. But understand that your conscience can be fallible. Your conscience may allow you to think that behavior that is immoral is moral. You need to let the Word of God retrain your conscience. Okay? It is a valuable gift from God. Sometimes it needs to be opened up. Sometimes it needs to be closed down. That's the work of God through His Word, by His Spirit, through Spirit-filled believers. He doesn't want us to trample on this valuable gift called conscience, which is given by God to promote holiness. To ignore your conscience, Romans 14.23, is sin. Here's how Paul says it. A passage that almost an exact copy of 1 Corinthians 8. He says, whatever is not of faith is what? It's sin. If you have in your heart a block in regards to certain behavior or practices, here's what the Word of God says. Don't do it. And if you do it, you're ignoring your God-given mechanism to produce holiness and a God-glorifying life. So, if your conscience has a problem with something, go to God and say, God, show me from your word whether this sensitivity that I have is biblical or not. Don't just ignore your conscience because someone else says, hey, it's not a big deal. It's a gift from God. Young people, I would beg of you, listen, listen to the God-given mechanism that produces holiness in your relationships and what you listen to and what you watch and what you participate in. It is a God-given gift. Help each other. Call each other to holiness. Honor this gift from God. A gift called your conscience. Some in the church in Corinth were thinking, hey, if my conscience is free, I can do whatever I want. That's what they were thinking. So if my conscience is free from thinking about idols as a reality, then I can live however I want to. Paul takes on that concern. He says, be careful, however. Why does he say that? Look at verse 8. Food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. Now you may feel better if you do, but you're not any morally, you're not more superior morally if you're free to eat or if you say, you know what, I'm sorry, I can't partake of that. See, the tendency is for us to think our way is the better way, right? And to cultivate pride. And since my way is the better way, I shouldn't let the sensitivities of others... Increase your faith practices. And this is why I rewrote it. Don't miss cell and celebration. Sing, worship, pray, read, assemble. Be in places where you feel protected, not threatened. Give thanks in all circumstances, 